right, so just a little catch up if we missed you last week. Uh, our plan for the next four weeks of Advent is to uh, kind of go, go off lectionary. Normally here at Springbrook, we uh, follow the lectionary, which means that our scriptures are picked for us. Uh, years and years and years ago, we, we stick with uh, churches all over the world that do this. Um, but for Advent, we're going a bit off, uh, taking a little bit of a detour. And so for the next four weeks, we are looking at different characters um, of the Advent season. And so we are each week looking at different characters of the nativity. We are trying to take a deep dive into their lives to look at their story and to look at their lives and see if, the, if there are things that we can glean and learn and take uh, from those things. Uh, last week, we looked at, Zach, at Zechariah. Uh, this week, we are going to be looking at Joseph, the father of Jesus, like Cody read for us. Uh, don't worry, the girls are coming We'll look at them soon. Um, girls get a lot of, of FaceTime in this story, and so we are focusing on the boys right now. Um, so before uh, we jump in, uh, I did want to ask you something. Have you ever been so surprised, like really, truly surprised by something? Maybe you got a car or an engagement or a surprise party or something like that. Um, I guess maybe a more important question is, do you like surprises? Is anyone here like, Really? Less people like surprises than not. I love them. If I could surprise myself, I would. I try to sometimes. I, I truly, truly love surprises. Um, one time Daniel and I came up with what we thought was a really good plan to surprise our kids, um, which is something that it, I love even more than surprising my own self is to surprise my kids. And so what we decided to do is we were going to let our kids think that they were going to bed and like get them all ready. And then we would get them up and we would take them at nighttime in the dark to watch airplanes landing at the airport, which like for little boys is just heaven and for 30-something-year-old women. And um, so we decided to do this. We're going we're gonna to fake them out. We are going to um, get their PJ. We're going to bathe them, get their PJs on, put them to bed, leave and shut the door, and then come back in and be like, psych. Well, probably not say that. That's not a 2000s word. Um, <laughs> psych, uh, you're not going to bed. We're going to the airport. And, and so we're fired up by this. We send them to bed. We um, tuck them in, we say our prayers, we give them kisses, we do all the things, and then we leave. And as we walk out the door, I do what I have a tendency to do, and that is to take something that is good and add a hundred things to it to make it even better and also potentially take it off the rails. And so when we, when we shut the door, I look at Daniel and I was like, you know what would make this better? And he's like, nothing, it's great, you know, and I'm like, no, what if? We go to the kitchen and we get pots and pans and we bang on them and we go in their room and we bang on pots and pans and we hoot and we holler and we're like, we're going to the airport to see the planes. And Daniel's like, I think the planes are plenty, but, but he's wonderful and he comes along for the ride very often. And so, so that's what we do. We go and we get, we get pots and pans and, and we, we go to their room, and it takes us a while to figure out just the right kind of stuff. And we go to their room, and we bust open the door, and we're banging on the bike. Bang, 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 bang. And I'm like, surprise, you're not going to bed, blah, blah, blah. Here's what I didn't know. In the few minutes that it took us to gather our pots and pans, our children had fallen asleep. And I mean, like, rim cycle asleep. I don't know what that means, but, you know, deep. 
deep, deep sleep. And so what happens is we have bust in, banging pots and pans, screaming at them, and they're asleep. And Daniel hears their screams before I do. I'm really into the gig. And I'm just like banging away. And our kids are 100% surprised, but they are also terrified. Like, terrified. Poor Graham is PTSD currently. Like it was terrifying because, and you know, that makes sense. If you think about it, loud noises waking you up are almost exclusively terrible, right? There's not really a good loud noise that wakes you up. They are exclusively terrible. And so as I've thought about Joseph this week, and as I've studied through Joseph this week, I have thought very often all week long about this story. Uh, Because to me, surprises are good, but not all surprises are good. Some surprises are terrible, or they are terrifying, or they are absolutely life-changing. And I think that that is the kind of surprise we're talking about uh, with Joseph today. Uh, When we read the story of Joseph, it's a... um, Today, so when we, um, 21st century people, read the story of Joseph, it's part um, of, a, of a large story of which we have a whole lot of pieces to. We have a whole lot of pieces to. When we read the story, what we know is that Joseph is the father of a baby who gets born in a manger. Uh, that baby goes on to live a perfect life, goes to the cross, saves the world, uh, it, it, it becomes Jesus. We, we kind of know all of these pieces of, of the story. But as I've been studying Joseph this week, what I've tried to do is I've been trying to put myself uh, in the shoes of the man we find just in our verses today. The man before the baby comes. Uh, the man before that baby grows up to become the Prince of Peace. The man who was truly surprised by very interesting news. Uh, Our text begins like this. It says, here's how Jesus was born. Joseph was engaged to a woman named Mary. And I want to pause there. Uh, This is one of those times, uh, again, when we read the Bible with 21st century eyes, um, when it might be more helpful for us to understand the depths of someone's story if we could read it with 1st century eyes. 1st century eyes would offer us a deeper uh, and wider picture than really maybe we are able to see. Because in the 21st century, when we think of engagement, we think of something a lot looser than what the Bible's talking about in Luke chapter 1. Um, In the 1st century, an engagement Engagement would have been um, a more binding thing than it is today. Today, you can go on The Bachelor, get engaged, and break up on the ride home, and the only thing that happens is you don't get to keep the ring. Unless you stay together for a year, then you get to keep the ring. Did you know that's true? Um, I, I think we see engagement deeper than that. I, I, don't, I really don't want to belittle it. Um, I, but, but I think for us, engagement, it, it is important. It is serious. It's more important than dating. It's more serious than dating. But it isn't a legally binding thing. That's what marriage is in the 21st century. But in the first century, um, engagement would have been a legally bound contract between two families. Uh, we learn in the verses uh, above what we read today in, in Matthew and also from um, the verses about this same story in Luke's gospel that Mary and Joseph would have both come from really devout Jewish families. And so because of that, um, this means that these families would have, for them to be engaged, would have come into contract together. It means that the families, not just the couple, I'm not trying to destroy all your romantic ideas about Mary and Joseph, um, but the, the family, not just the couple, would have vetted each other to make sure that things were a good fit socially, familially, uh, financially, 
Their engagement, it would have been long. It would have lasted uh, at least a year, probably more. Um, every time Mary and Joseph would have been together as, a, as devout Jews, would, they would have been exclusively supervised visits. So these two people would know each other um, in the presence of a chaperone. Um, and then what would happen over the engagement is that the family would be working out the financial and social and familial pieces of a legally binding agreement. Honestly, when we talk about engagement in the first century, it's a lot more like buying a house in the 21st century or starting a business in the 21st century. That's more what we're talking about. And so it is within this agreement that the information comes to Joseph. Like when we think about it, an engagement in our eyes, that would be shocking information. When we put on first century eyes, it is shocking information. And we don't know how the information about Mary's pregnancy comes to Joseph. Uh, we don't see that in the text. Maybe she told him herself. Uh, based on what we know of engagements in the first century, there's a good chance um, that these two people, both of whom were teenagers, by the way, um, probably didn't know each other super well. Like I said, all of their visits would have been supervised. They are part of a transaction. And so every moment they have would have been with a chaperone. And so I was trying to imagine how the conversation went. Like maybe Mary does come to him and says, I'm pregnant. Or maybe it's the chaperone or someone else who says, she's pregnant. And that alone is shocking information. But, but that isn't all of the information that's shared. They come and they say, Mary is pregnant, but don't worry. It's not someone else's baby. It's uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, this is my job. Being a pastor is my job. Aaron, my boss, calls it being a professional Christian. I'm a professional Christian. And if someone came to me and said, I'm pregnant, but don't worry. It's not a man's baby. It's the Holy Spirit's baby. I would laugh. Wouldn't you? Hard, I, I, maybe behind their back, maybe to their face. I, I would laugh. It is, it is absurd. It is as absurd of an idea today as it was in the first century. And so, uh, side note, on that note, if the idea of a virgin birth feels absolutely absurd to you, I think Matthew puts you in very good company. If the immaculate conception seems outrageous then the truth of that means that you are a sane and logical person because it is outrageous, because it doesn't make sense. It is bananas, and when we read it, it is supposed to feel this way. But the magic of Christmas, part of the magic of Christmas, lies in the request of God through his word that we make room for the wonder of Jesus. That we make room for the idea of the absurd. A hero of mine, Ashley Matthews, says it like this. She says, your brain was made by someone and he reserves the right to surprise you with it. God is a God who has given us both a capacity for logic and a capacity for wonder. And that's what he's inviting Joseph into uh, through this information. He's inviting him to be a man with a capacity for logic and a man with a capacity for wonder. Uh, this is the moment where God is asking Joseph, is there room for me here? Is there room for the wild and wonderful in your life? So back to Joseph. Word gets back to him that Mary is pregnant. Again, we don't know how. Um, but it seems clear from his next step that he doesn't believe the story, uh, the Holy Spirit story. And he has every right not to. Like the evidence, there is, there is no other immaculate conception. This isn't an idea that has happened before. And so he has every right not to believe it. This isn't a thing that happens in the world. 
And so what Joseph is, is receiving through this information is the idea that his betrothed, his fiance, has broken the bounds of their contract. He knows that it's not his baby. Most likely they've, they've never been alone. He's never been alone with her. And so what he sees is that he has an unfaithful fiance. And at the time, the legal punishment for an unfaithful woman who was impregnated by someone else is death. The legal punishment for this woman was to stone her to death. And not just that. She's not just coming and saying, I'm pregnant. That isn't, again, not all the information. She's coming and saying, I'm pregnant and it's God's baby. And so this information is coming at Joseph and she has to seem not just like an adulterer, but like a lunatic, right? Like a lunatic or a heretic pulling God into it. You ever done that? I didn't turn in my homework. God told me not to. That's, that's the tiny equivalent. Joseph has every reason uh, before God, before his family, and before his community to, publish, to publicly punish her. That would have been considered the right thing to do by anyone he asked. To put her on display in front of the community, proving that, this, that he had not done this, that this was her willing choice, and they would have stoned her to death. That would have been something that was the right thing to do. But Joseph, he does something different. He does something different. There are so many miraculous things that surround the birth of Jesus so many things of wonder and wild all over the story of the birth of Jesus. And, and for all of the glittery, glamorous miracles that happen around it, I don't want us to miss this one. I think so often when we read the story of Joseph, we skip to the angel and the dream. But my hope today is to look at Joseph before the angel comes in the dream. This, these few little verses, this, this little moment uh, before the angel comes to him. Some of the magic of Christmas lies in these moments. There's something so miraculous and something so supernatural about the response of Joseph uh, before God visits him. Something has happened in his life, in the life of Joseph, and his trust in the Father that fills him with the kind of generosity and humility and hope and peace that he could make room in his life. Matthew uh, tells us in what Cody read today in verse 19, Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to, to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. Other versions of this verse say uh, divorce her quietly. Ending an engagement would have been an end to a legal contract. This is a divorce more than it is a breakup, if that makes sense. And what Joseph does here in this moment is part of the miracle. The, the text tells us he chooses to engage in the engagement quietly. Again, we have to remember um, that our 21st century eyes uh, don't tell the whole story. Here today, divorce is almost as common as marriage, right? And it's only in the last 40 years that it was possible to have a no-fault divorce. This is 2,000 years ago. Divorce was not quiet and someone always had to be at fault. And yet, this kid, this teenager, he, he chooses this different way. Uh, the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible said, calls it a quiet dismissal. That he chooses to quietly dismiss her. Here's what that means. It means that Joseph's choice was that he, he didn't want to take her to court and have a ruling. So, like we said before, death 
would have been a fair punishment for Mary's actions at the time. Divorce, a legal end to the contract, would have been a merciful action at the time. A quiet dismissal would have been absolutely absurd. Unheard of. Ridiculous. The decision to end an engagement quietly meant Joseph was actively choosing a lifetime of public shame for himself and for his family. It would have been assumed that if he quietly dismissed uh, Mary, it would have been assumed that he was the father of of the child. And so for the rest of his life, Joseph's story would have been that he abandoned his family and there was nothing worse It was worse than what Mary had done. There would be nothing worse at the time. This would have cost him uh, socially. It would have cost him and his family socially. It also would have cost them financially. Um, For in order to enter into a legal binding contract, Mary's family would have brought a dowry. And so if there was a legal decision, then Joseph would have been entitled to all of the money that he was promised. But now... With a quiet ending to this, with no legal decision, it would mean that he he lost all rights to a dowry and a slim chance of ever being able to enter into a contract, a dowry contract, with anybody else. Divorce would have allowed him to walk away with a free and clear conscience, with money in his pocket, his integrity intact. But that isn't what he does. That isn't his choice. His choice is nuts. This kid, he gives up money that he is owed, and he makes a decision to take on all of the shame of Mary. He could have walked away a victim with money in his pocket, but instead he chooses the opposite, to bear the shame of a woman he, by all accounts, barely knows. What kind of person does this? What kind of person does this. One of the miracles of the birth of Jesus comes in the form of the gentle and generous humility of a teenager who has the wisdom and courage and kindness to act first in mercy when he was scorned to actively choose to bear a burden that was not his own. It comes in the form of a teenager who set aside the privilege of his birth and his life for the good of a woman. Call me crazy, but I think that we have something to learn from Joseph, this man who had room for Jesus. Joseph, he's a man um, who is not marked by vengeance, but is marked by mercy. He is a man who, in the face of offense, is marked by mercy. His right was retribution or declaration of innocence. That was his right. His choice, however, was mercy. And here I am 2,000 years ago so unbelievably easily offended with what, a taste for what I call justice, but is actually vengeance and is actually retribution. We have the thinnest skin. We do. We, as people of the 21st century, are offended by other drivers. Are you? I am. I get... We as people get offended when people pull out in front of us as if it is an injustice. You do it too. All the time. We all do it. We have no idea what their day was. We have no idea if they saw us. And yet we act as if it is an injustice against us. We have the thinnest skin. There is injustice all over our world. Someone pulling out in front of you is not an injustice. It just isn't. It's an inconvenience. Those are very different. 
sorry, that was off note. Um, there is injustice all over the world. This is not one of them. We are so easily offended. And we're surprised by it. I have the best kids in the world, and sometimes they're punks. And I don't know if you've met 12-year-olds, but 12-year-olds can be punks. And when they're punks to me, I'm shocked every time. What are you doing? Why would you be mean to me? Because every part of your body is growing and changing. You have no idea what's up from down and left from right. But somehow I act shocked by it. We are surprised when we are offended very often in our lives, clouded by a vengeance that none of us want to see in our own hearts, that we call righteousness, uh, what is actually taking place is a deep, deep darkness inside of us. Righteousness and retribution are not the same thing. They don't go hand in hand. We as followers of Jesus are supposed to be people who are willing to dive deep into mercy at our own expense. Are willing to take on the offense and be deep in mercy in a way that costs us a lot. Our kindness and grace and mercy, these are the things that are supposed to set us apart in the world. And, and, and road rage is a place to start and parenting is a place to start. But, but it's so much bigger than that. These are supposed to be the marks of people who claim to follow Jesus. Goodness and kindness and mercy and peace. They are supposed to mark us, to set us apart. Joseph is a man who chose mercy when others wouldn't have and at great cost to himself. And this has messed with me so much this week. It has kind of destroyed me this week. It is one thing to show mercy and kindness uh, to people who show mercy and kindness to us. That makes sense. But those are not the things that make us, make us distinct. Showing mercy and kindness to people just like us who, who show us mercy and kindness, that is not the mark of Jesus in our life. Jesus, that's not where he shows up. Jesus shows up when we practice the wild mercy. The mercy that makes no sense at all. Jesus shows up when mercy, when we show mercy in places where it makes no sense to have to show mercy, in places where you have absolutely 100% been wronged and have a right to retribution, and yet mercy rules the day. Uh, Jesus shows up in places where uh, mercy costs us something. That's what makes us distinct. When mercy costs us something. This is where the magic and the resurrection shows up in our lives. And this has wrecked me all week long. Showing mercy cost Joseph so much. It would have. The story goes a little different. His plan was to willingly walk into and bear the shame of the one that he had every single reason to believe had wronged him. His plan was to take on what was hers to bear. Joseph, on purpose, was willingly choosing to become the talk of the dinner table, the talk of the town. He would bear the words that would be repeated probably for the rest of his days, disgraced, abandoned, untrustworthy, uh, deserter. Why on earth would he choose that? Why on earth would he choose that? If you have any idea how that feels, to be the talk of the town or the talk of 
the hallway or the lunchroom or the break room, not in a good way, the talk of the rumor mill, if you have any idea how this feels, then you know that it would be absurd to willingly take it on to protect someone else. That is bananas. Especially when someone else has wronged you, when they made a choice against you, it is a wild choice to make, uh, to follow the path of peace uh, to the edge of mercy. That is a wild choice. The story of Joseph, it doesn't end there, obviously. There's more to it. But I think it's so important that we, took, they, that we take the time to see the man who would here on earth be the father of Jesus, who he was before he knows what kind of baby is coming. Uh, Ashley Matthews, who I quoted earlier, says that part of the miracle of the birth of Jesus is the discipleship of his parents. The way that they actually follow the one that they claim to follow and love. It is the way two teenagers marked by the mercy of God follow him into the craziest place. So as Joseph is planning this quiet dismissal, an angel comes to him in a dream and he says this. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The angel comes to Joseph and he says, Joseph, that wild story is true. It is God's baby. And you will name him Jesus. And he will be born to be with God's people. And he will set them free. And so Joseph does what God asks him to do. He marries Mary. And they have a son. And they call him Jesus. The Prince of Peace. And Hebrew tells us about Jesus that for the joy set before him, he followed in the footsteps of both of his fathers. And in the greatest act of mercy, he chose to bore our shame. Shame that was not his own in order to set us free. The band uh, can come on up. I have been so rattled, maybe is the right word. Um, by this idea of willing kindness and mercy and forgiveness and bearing the burden and the shame of another this week. And um, that rattling has meant that I have uh, had to look at some really dark and ugly places in my heart where I want vengeance and I want retribution and I want the true story to be told and I don't want people to talk about me in a way I don't deserve and all of these things that swim in my heart and live in my heart. I, I want to, to be the victim and I want to be the hero instead of bearing the shame and the burdens of another person. And it's just rattled me. And, and the thing is, I think it's okay to be rattled. I think it's okay for the Holy Spirit to get in our lives and mess some things up and show us some things that, that we don't want to see. Um, conviction, the Bible tells us that conviction is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. That, that uh, seeing things as not quite right is evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. So um, we're going to take a few minutes. We, again, we do this every week here at the Vineyard. Um, and we call it Ceylon. It's just a breath. It's just a quiet moment. And, um, and you don't have to do what I'm going to ask you to do. Just take a quiet moment because when do you ever get a quiet moment? Um, but my hope is that in the next few minutes, um, I want to, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to fill us with the courage to be rattled by this story. The courage to look in our hearts at the places where we are calling vengeance justice. The places where we want to be right more than we want mercy. 
the places where we have thin skin, places we're calling injustice that are actually inconvenient. It might not feel very Christmassy to spend a few moments looking in the dark places in your heart, but it's really a very Advent thing to do. The season of Advent, uh, it takes place during the darkest part of the whole year. It is visually and spiritually a place where we trudge through the darkness toward the light. That's what Advent is. And so I'm inviting us to do that together this morning. Uh, One more thing before we're quiet. Um, Conviction and shame aren't the same thing. So if you spend minutes in the dark and you feel the voice of shame or the you aren't enough and, and you're horrible or any of those things, that is not the spirit of God. That is not the voice of God. God is not, God uh, chose to bear our shame, not to barf it on you. The voice of conviction and the voice of shame are two different voices. So here's how the voice of God works. The voice of God draws you to the light, draws you toward peace. Okay, let's pray. God, we ask you uh, to send your spirit in this room. The thing um, I believe most about you is that you are not just with us, you are for us. That you uh, love us with a reckless mercy. A mercy that makes no sense and seems absolutely absurd. And so I pray in these next few minutes under the comfort of that love and under the comfort of that mercy, will you give us the courage to look inside ourselves? Will you let us see the places that, um, the places we are not walking in a path of peace? Will you show us the faces of people in our life that we uh, hold offense against or have a list of offenses that we hold Against and we call it righteousness, but you are asking us to let go and to walk in a mercy. Will you, uh, will you give us a true picture of what mercy is? That it isn't weak and rolling over. That mercy might be the strongest thing a human being ever does. And so, will you fill us with the strength to be that kind of person? That we would be marked by mercy that's distinct, marked by mercy. That costs us because we believe that you are the hope of the world. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, we're going to come to the table. We do this every week as well. Um, I was thinking about this this week. I love Santa. I don't know that anyone's ever talked about Santa and communion together, but let's go. Uh, I love Santa. And, um, you know the story of Santa that uh, if you if you do good things, then on Christmas morning all of these good presents come to you, right? And that you have to be uh, nice and not naughty. Maybe you have an elf on a shelf that spies on you, and and you know a small man living in your home that tells Santa what you're doing. It's creepy. We have one. Um, okay, so uh, I read something. The reason I love Santa, I, I read something. I, I 
I think it was by Spurgeon years ago. And he said that, um, that uh, he was talking about Santa and he said, what was so incredible about Santa is that I knew that I was terrible all year long. And yet I woke up on Christmas morning and there were always so many presents that, that he would wake up every Christmas morning with a, like a lump in his throat or a, a butterflies in his belly. Like there's not going to be anything there. I don't deserve anything. And yet he would, uh, he would go to the tree and there would be presents galore. And, and, and it was, it was his first idea of benevolence. And as I was thinking about the table this morning, I thought, uh, and the idea of mercy, I thought that, um, that this is a table where we exercise our capacity for wonder. That this is a table that asks us to believe that though we are a people who do not show mercy, that though we are a people who walk with great offense, that though we are a people full of vengeance, that though we are a people who did not deserve it, uh, we woke up to the idea that God wanted us, that he wanted us no matter what. That's the story of Christmas. That is the gospel that you are wanted by the one who made you, who promises to put all things back to right, who wants you to be part of that plan. This table exercises no logic. It exercises our capacity for wonder for magic, for the wildest thing. And so you don't have to be a member of the vineyard to come forward. It is, um, it is a party that is wide open. This is the, me- this is the family meal of, of the followers of Jesus. And so uh, the way that we do it is uh, we just make a little basket with our hands and, and um, the folks up here will serve you. Uh, we believe, uh, again, as an exercise of wonder that this isn't something we have to grab uh, and take, that this is something that is freely offered and freely given to us. So we kind of connect our bodies to our spirits that way. So whenever you're ready, you can come forward if you want. And so on the night he was betrayed, Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this out of your great affection for me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of a new covenant between God and man. Not vengeance, but mercy, my blood for you. Drink this out of your great affection for me. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim my life, death, and we believe resurrection forever.